When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Hello there. I am Stephanie Safarian, and this is episode 127 of the Sustainable Minimalist podcast. On today's show, we are discussing environmental justice. We're getting into what it is, why it's important, and how you and I can fight for it. Specifically on today's show, I am outlining the ways in which racial injustice and climate injustice are intertwined, because I believe that when we bring these difficult topics into the light, we can start to focus on solutions. Now, you likely already know that it has been a very painful two weeks here in the United States. Because on May 25th, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was stopped by police investigating the purchase of cigarettes with counterfeit money. A viral video revealed to the public Floyd's arrest and his subsequent murder after a police officer knelt on his neck for nearly nine minutes, even after Floyd can be heard pleading that he couldn't breathe. If you are listening right now and are wondering what on earth George Floyd has to do with sustainability, well, the answer is quite an awful lot. If you are listening abroad, I know I have a lot of international listeners. Hello there, international listeners. I love you. Know, too, that environmental injustice happens to people of color everywhere, not just here in America. So this episode will likely be an important listen for you as well. On today's show, I am doing three distinct things. First, I am painting a vivid picture of what environmental injustice looks like. Second, I am distinguishing climate injustice from environmental injustice. And finally, I am suggesting some common sense ways both you and I can work to bring awareness to the environmental injustices that are happening all around us every single day. Now, before we get right into it, a quick note that the Sustainable Minimalist podcast is supported by Oregon State University eCampus, a national leader in online education. Pair your passion for sustainable living with OSU's passion for the environment by earning a degree online in fields like sustainability and public health. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu forward slash minimalists. So environmental injustice. What on earth is that? Have you ever thought about it? Before recording this interview, I had thought about it and I knew cognitively that it occurs And when instances pop up on the evening news, I, of course, think it's terrible, but I never did anything about it. I never took it a step further. 
And what is it exactly? Environmental injustice is also known as environmental racism. And instead of starting today's episode by giving you a textbook definition of environmental justice, I am instead going to paint a vivid picture of what it is not. So environmental injustice is Flint, Michigan. Environmental injustice is the sad truth that people of color are much more likely to live near polluters and breathe polluted air. Environmental injustice is even the BP oil spill, because all that oil that was cleaned up out of the Gulf of Mexico was then dumped into landfills in predominantly black communities. Now, these are just three examples of environmental injustice or environmental racism that have somehow cut through the noise and managed to get onto the mainstream media's attention. There are thousands, maybe there are even tens of thousands of examples of environmental racism that never make the news. They never even get close to being a headline. So let's just take one example of environmental injustice, probably the biggest one that I mentioned, and refresh our memories. Flint, Michigan, right? Flint, Michigan came into the spotlight at the tail end of 2015 because of its very poor, and you know what, poor isn't even the right word there. The right word is toxic because of their toxic water quality. Residents in Flint had been drinking and bathing in water contaminated with lead. Now, side note here on lead, there is a reason your child's pediatrician is so concerned with lead exposure. (laughs) There is a reason why when you buy an old house, you get it tested for lead. Lead is a neurotoxin that causes brain and nervous system damage. It slows growth and development. According to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, there is no safe blood level in children. The safest blood level of lead is zero. So back to Flint. Even though the media started covering Flint at the tail end of 2015, the reality is that you and I started paying attention in the middle of the story. The story started two years prior, back in 2013, when the Black community in Flint started voicing concerns about their drinking water. For two entire years, government officials assured them over and over again that their water was safe, so their plight remained under the radar. When Flint finally did find itself on the cover of newspapers and the top story on the nightly news two full years later, it was because it was determined that the residents of Flint had been drinking water and bathing in water contaminated with lead levels that were several thousand times higher than the federal maximum. You know, if you're listening to this and wondering, well, how on earth did that even happen? The answer is so simple, it's confounding. Local officials just simply failed to use the legally mandated water treatments that would have kept the residents of Flint's water clean. So as a result, 9,000 children under the age of six in Flint, Michigan, have been exposed to tainted water and are at a high risk for neurological damage from lead. Flint is a recent illustration of what happens, or perhaps maybe I should say what doesn't happen, to communities of color in America. 
Here are a couple more statistics. African Americans are more likely to live near toxic waste facilities than whites. Their communities are less likely to receive adequate protection to prevent disasters, and these communities are less likely to get the kind of immediate response white communities get when emergencies do occur. That, my friends, is environmental injustice. Now, it goes without saying that environmental injustice or environmental racism, their synonyms, happen just in America. It happens in developing countries like India, Bangladesh, and China when textile plants pollute the areas around their factories. It happens in East Asia when America ships its trash and recycling there and then therefore makes our garbage their problem. It happens in indigenous lands all over the globe when they are raised to make room for grazing cattle. I could go on and on. My point here is that it happens everywhere, and it happens a lot. Now, if you're asking yourself, how on earth does this happen? How does environmental injustice happen? Well, just like racism... Environmental racism can be systemic, and it occurs with or without the conscious effort of government bodies. But it can also be quite local, too. Wealthier white neighborhoods do not want their houses next to hazardous waste facilities, and wealthier white neighborhoods have the money and the political power to protect their own interests. So communities of color, then, are often forced to take on the landfills, the industrial complexes, and other environmentally dangerous sites that can lower property values and hurt the humans living there. So if environmental justice then is a movement that is a combination of both civil rights and environmental rights, it's interesting to know that prior to 1982, the civil rights movement and the environmental rights movement were on their own. They were their own entities and they tended to stay in their own lanes. The environmental movement of the 60s and the 70s focused largely on preserving those beautiful outdoor areas. The environmental movement pretty much ignored urban areas by and large. And so the environmental movement, environmentalists, they all got a bad reputation as being something just for white people. But civil rights and environmental rights collided in 1982 in Warren County, North Carolina, to create the concept of environmental justice. In 1982, an electric transformer manufacturer dumped tons, and I literally mean tons, of cancer-causing polychlorinated biphenyl along the highway. And when it came time to clean up all that polychlorinated biphenyl, the North Carolina government chose Warren County, which is a small, predominantly African-American county in North Carolina, to put all this toxic waste. The residents of Warren County protested, and they protested for six weeks, and over 500 residents were arrested. Now, the end of this story is sad. North Carolina eventually still did dump all this toxic waste into Warren County soil. But the good news is these protests and these arrests attracted national attention. And for the first time, the American public, so you and me, became more aware of 
the specific environmental issues that face communities of color. And shortly after that, a broader environmental justice movement began to emerge. So that is environmental justice. And when we talk about environmental justice, we also have to highlight climate justice. But before we do that, I would like to tell you a little bit more about one of our supporters, Oregon State University eCampus. With sustainability in mind, Oregon State strives to create healthier people and a healthier planet. Joshua Chan Burgess learned all about that mission as he pursued his sustainability degree online with OSU eCampus. As his studies took him from Asia to Ohio to Florida, he learned things like the importance of composting and how to be a practitioner of ecological restoration. Learn more about how you can make your impact felt at ecampus.oregonstate.edu forward slash minimalists. So climate justice. It has never before been more important to fight not just against climate change, but for climate justice, because people of color already are and will be more in the future disproportionately affected by the effects of climate change. Now, when I seek to give you an example of climate injustice, of course, the poster child example for climate injustice is dun, 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 Hurricane Katrina of 2005. And now, while we cannot say with absolute 100% certainty that Hurricane Katrina was due to climate change, we can say that it is well documented that higher sea levels and warming oceans create stronger hurricanes. Hurricane Katrina was a Category 5 hurricane that hit the primarily African-American neighborhoods of New Orleans the hardest. Over 80% of the homes that were lost during the storm belonged to African-American residents, 80%. Now, you might be wondering, why were Black neighborhoods hit the hardest? That would be a really great question. And the answer is not so pretty. In the years before Katrina hit, most of the federal money that was supposed to go to strengthen the city's levees went to strengthening the levees on the white side of town. And then, just to add a ton of insult to a huge injury, when it came time to rebuild the city after Katrina, the first building plans that were presented to the city council slated the white areas for immediate redevelopment, not the black communities who were hit the hardest. That is climate injustice. And as the effects of climate change become more evident, climate injustice will become more pronounced. So we're moving right on to part three of today's episode, which of course is some practical action steps. What can you and I do to take a stand against environmental injustice and climate injustice? Now, there is a popular quote circulating on social media right now by political activist Angela Davis, and essentially the quote says that it's not enough to be non-racist, right? In a racist society, you have to be actively anti-racist. And it's the same with environmentalism. It's not, or I guess it should say, it's no longer 
simply enough to care about preserving the green spaces in your community. It's not it's no longer enough to clean up your local beach for your enjoyment. We must work towards climate justice for all communities, for all people across all races, all classes, and all geographies. The good news here is that many of the ways that we can take a stand against racism are also powerful ways to combat environmental injustice. It is about understanding, really, at the end of the day, that the average white American does not feel the effects of systemic racism. The average white American is not at all disrupted. So it becomes about disrupting the power structure enough so that the average white American is forced to feel it. How do you do that? How do you make the average white American feel disrupted? by systemic racism. How on earth do you do that? Well, you protest peacefully. You sign every petition that comes to your inbox. If you are financially able, you donate often to civil rights causes as well as environmental organizations. They desperately need your funding. And if you are in a place where you can donate, do it. Another way you can combat environmental racism is to keep listening. Pay special attention to what is happening in the marginalized communities near you, and also keep reading. One of the most troubling aspects of environmental injustice, in my opinion, is that it doesn't get the attention of the mainstream media Unless something really, really, really terrible happens, like Flint, like Katrina. Environmental injustice is happening every single day. (laughs) Don't just wait for the mainstream media to alert you, to tell you it's happening. Seek it out instead. Finally, the final way that we can take a stand is to show up. And when I say show up, what I really mean is to join the conversation. It is on us. It is on you and it is on me to call out the baloney when we see it. (laughs) As a white person, I'm white, I think that many white people are reluctant to speak up and speak out when it comes to issues of race, not because they're racist, but for the simple reason that they worry if their words aren't perfect, they'll make everything worse. I have felt this way so many times. And in the past, in my personal life, and when I say personal life, I mean in my life apart from this podcast, I always, or I used to always, choose to just keep scrolling. I read something on social media that's blatantly racist or blatantly untrue. I purposely shied away from having those awkward conversations about race and about politics with people in my life, everyone except for my close friends and family. I thought I was doing the right thing by keeping my big mouth shut. (laughs) But I'm realizing, finally, that saying nothing is actually just a form of complacency. So even if my words aren't perfect, and even if I don't nail down my sentiment exactly the way I'm hoping, and even if it's really, really darn uncomfortable for me, I still need to say something in instances that are 
immoral or unjust or untrue. So that's what I'm working on personally these days, and I hope you'll join me. Now, if you're like me and you tend to not want to speak out, know that showing up is so unbelievably uncomfortable at first. You will get smacked with white fragility in the form of over-the-top defensiveness, so be prepared for it. And know, too, that speaking up and speaking out and showing up It does get easier the more you do it. It's like bringing those bags, those reusable bags to the grocery store. It gets easier the more you practice. (laughs) On a related note here is that if someone comes to you and gently or not so gently calls you out on something you said or did, try to listen. Try to not get defensive, even though defensiveness is human nature. And that goes for me too. So if you listen to this episode and you think I got it all wrong, if I've was totally off base in your opinion. I want to hear about it. (laughs) I want to learn. I want to grow. And I rely on all of you to keep me in check. So I will be reading the comments on this episode in our private Facebook group, The Sustainable Minimalists. And I look forward to reading and hearing your honest feedback. Now, this week, we have an eco tip, and it comes from Louise. Louise wrote to me to tell me that there is an amazing thing called clothing dye, and clothing dye increases the lifespan of your clothes. So if you have a favorite black t-shirt and it still fits, it still looks good, but it has that one problem, and it's that the black is super faded and it just looks meh, there is a thing called clothing dye. You can fix faded blacks, faded navies. You can fix any color you want. I did a quick search online and they literally have any color (laughs) for any clothing item you need. You can use them on different fibers too. So not just cotton, you can put them on your synthetics if your synthetics are looking a little meh. It's really easy to do. There's some you can put in the washing machine. There's some you do in a pot on the stove. And it really just rejuvenates faded clothing. It is a form of upcycling and I love it. Thank you so much, Louise. Now, on next week's show, we are discussing all things money and all things minimalism and the place in which money and minimalism intersect. I will see you then. Have an amazing week. Stay home, stay healthy, love one another, and take care.